So I want to have you turn to Acts 17, and we're going to be uh, starting in verse 16. And because we've taken a little bit of a break, I want to I bring you up to speed. Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's been in uh, chapter 17, verse 1, in Thessalonica, got run out of town. Then he went to Berea and ministered there and got run out of town. And now he's taken a 300-mile journey to Athens. He was led there by some brothers from the church. He left Paul and Silas in Berea to continue and finish up some work there. And they led him uh, kind of by night in the, in, in the darkness to um, uh, this area of Athens. And we'll talk about Athens in just a moment. But Paul left word, bring Silas and Timothy as soon as possible. The idea was that he was going to wait and do ministry there. Now, I want to tell you just a little bit about Athens uh, before I read the text so that as you're, we're reading it, you can get a good picture of what's happening. Athens uh, is one of the greatest Greco-Roman cities in history, but it's about 500 years previous that it was really at its zenith. And now it's still uh, a, a wonderful cultural center, especially for uh, intellectual pursuits, but it's no longer the political um, uh, city that it once was. Yet it contains the Acropolis, the, the Parthenon, one of the greatest uh, architectural wonders of the world is found there. It's a center of art and beauty and culture and knowledge at the time that Paul is there in this text. It was the academic and intellectual center of the world, uh, in the, especially in the Greco-Roman world. It was the home of some of the great philosophers that many of us have studied uh, before at some point, or at least heard their names of Plato and Socrates and, uh, and Aristotle. And, uh, but the thing that Athens was known for predominantly was for its idol worship. There, uh, uh, we have historical accounts of, of Athens that there were at least 30,000 idols in Athens. In fact, uh, one of their historical uh, scholars at that time says it's easier to find a, a god in, in Athens than it is a man because the, uh, the population was only 10,000 at the time. And so you have 30,000 idols and you have temple worship to all different types of gods. Every god that you can imagine that was uh, known at that time was being worshiped. And so we find that Paul, uh, a, a very studied man himself, having risen in the ranks of the, of the Sanhedrin, being groomed under the teaching and tutelage of Gamaliel, one of the greatest scholars of that time, for the very first time is about to enter this city that he's never actually personally been to before, certainly heard a lot about it, but now he is going to actually enter this city. And that's where we pick up the text in chapter 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, what you worship is something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. 
The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made in man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Father, we want to thank you for this text of scripture this morning. And Lord, we have a, a real hunger to know you. And I was thinking about... Uh, Proverbs 4.18 that says that the righteous are like the first gleam of dawn growing ever brighter until the full light of day. And Lord, that's what we want to be, Lord. We want to be growing ever brighter as we know you and as we learn about you, as we study your word, as we encourage each other, as we pray together. And Lord, I'm praying that every one of us would leave this place having been built up, encouraged, and inspired by your word. And so, Father, we pray by your spirit that you would make it so. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Paul enters a city, and uh, the text tells us that he was greatly distressed. This word actually is a much stronger word than simply he was, he was concerned. It means that he was provoked. In fact, he means that he was really provoked to anger. He was provoked to anger in a jealousy for the name of God, and he was also provoked to anger because he saw that this, this, this city had been completely misled by these foreign gods and by this idolatry. It's the same word and the same kind of concept that's found in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, when it talks about Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it, it says that Lot was a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men. And so Paul comes into the city uh, known for its academic excellence, known for its literature, known for its poetry, known for its incredible philosophy, known as really at one time almost a political center of the Greco-Roman world, although at this time it wasn't the case any longer, and it was a very uh, established and very kind of a highly cultural developed uh, city and area. And so he comes into this place and yet he is hit full face with the idolatry. That's what he sees, and it's not uncommon. Uh, at that time, people would come in, and the first thing they'd notice is the 30,000 idols. You know, that's a lot of idols to have in a city with 10,000 people uh, inhabiting the city. And so he's deeply distressed by what he discovers there. And, uh, you know, it is a distressing thing when people are, are given to idolatry. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today uh, in a, in a, as we go through the text here. But the idolatry was distorting the capacity of people to know God. It was a twisting of this 
heartfelt desire of men and women to know God, to know that there's something beyond themselves, that life isn't just about us and existing, but there is a divine beginner. He is the creator of the universe. He is the one that's created everything and does everything, and the Bible tells us he holds everything in his hands. And so Paul recognizes that, and he sees the degradation of what Satan has done in this city to bring people to the point where they have lost perspective of the one true God. And so we find that he begins to reason with the citizens in the city. And it tells us that he does this day and night. There are three groups of people that we find he's ministering to. He's ministering to Jews who are a part of the temple worship at that time. They have a, a, a background of the Old Testament. They are believers in Yahweh, but they don't believe in the Messiah. And then we've got another group of people. They're called God-fearing Greeks. These are non-Jews, but who have adopted the, the uh, Jewish lifestyle and have accepted Yahweh as the one true God, and yet they are, are not uh, uh, racially Jewish. And then we have another group uh, that is described as people in the Agora, and this is just the marketplace. These are just common people that aren't really necessarily very religious. And so the Bible tells us that Paul, he gets to the city. He's actually supposed to wait. <laughs> you know, he, he was going to wait for, for Silas and Timothy. He wanted to do ministry as a team, which is usually the best way to do ministry. But he got into the city. He was so distressed, he couldn't wait. He couldn't stop, and he had to preach the gospel. And so it tells us that he began to reason with the people, with the citizens of Athens. This, this word reasons is uh, dioligami, where we get our word dialogue from in English. So he, it wasn't a dialectic. I mean, he wasn't just completely, uh, it wasn't a diatribe against the people of Athens. He wasn't coming against them and just exploding on them. He began to dialogue with the people of Athens. It, it's interesting because um, this particular text, uh, also known as, as Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, is kind of a case study of evangelism for anybody that does any evangelism, anybody in missions, anybody in church planting, they look strategically at this particular text as one of the fundamental teaching tools about how a Christian comes into a, an area that doesn't really know the name of Christ and how to present Christ. And we're gonna talk about some of the things that Paul did that made his message so effective. And uh, eventually, Athens became uh, one of the, the uh, centers of Christianity uh, as a result of this missionary venture that he was a part of. But he began to reason with them, which means to discuss thoroughly. So Paul was sharing and communicating, and he was being asked questions, and then he was asking questions, and there was a dialogue that was going on. And I don't know how you share Christ with your friends, but I know when I was a new Christian, I came out of the gate with all guns blazing. I mean, I'd get in a room and I was just like waiting for somebody to say something that I could turn into a Christian message, you know? And I'd get up and preach and I'd talk. I mean, my friends got sick of me. I mean, they really liked me, but you know how you are sometimes when you're a new Christian and you just, they gotta get saved today and the, you know, Christ could come back at this moment and you need to hear the gospel and I'm here to tell you the gospel and it's not much listening. Just a lot of diatribe. The message is right, but the method is flawed. And so Paul begins to do something that's very wise. He begins to dialogue and allow a conversation to take place. And fortunately, over the years, I've learned a couple things. <laughs> Not a lot, but I've learned a few things. And one of the things that I've learned is that it's really important when we're sharing our faith with people that we respect them. <laughs> it's such a simple little principle. But when we share, it needs to be done with respect and with gentleness and honor. And so now I've kind of learned that, you know, I need to ask questions. And I need to take an interest. I remember when we were in India 
uh, and I had this invitation to teach in the Bible college over there this last year. And uh, we made some friends near the hotel and they invited us over to their house. And the first thing they wanted to show me was their household idols, you know? And uh, earlier on in my Christian life, I would have been in there rebuking that. I would have been getting it and breaking it and burning it, you know? But I went in there instead and I said, tell me about your idols. You know, they had this little, and I'll talk about that in a couple of minutes too, but tell me about your household idols. There are like five or six idols with, almost looked like a crash scene that we might see at Christmas, but it was this little house and all these little idols and little candles burning and everything. And we had the most fascinating and wonderful conversation about spiritual things that eventually led to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the dialogue opened the door for us to be friends and to communicate about spiritual things. And so Paul comes into this very volatile situation. Now remember, he's distressed, he's angry, he's deeply provoked in his spirit. And yet he reigns it in and he begins to dialogue in a respectful way with the city of Athens and the people there. And so we find that um, as he's talking, verse 18 tells us that two groups of people approach him. One are called Epicureans and the other are Stoics. Epicureans were, were followers of a man that 300 years earlier lived. His name was Epicurus. And, uh, and he had a particular philosophy of life that was uh, actually quite interesting uh, and that many people followed at that time in Athens. They believed that the primary goal of life was to be happy and to experience pleasure. That was the primary goal. They were the first to live by the motto of eat, drink, and be merry. And they were essentially existentialists that life really had no meaning and they were, uh, in essence, atheists uh, having a party. And so that was their whole existence is that we don't believe in God, we don't believe in all these gods, uh, life is short and it terminates and then there's nothing after that, it's just this life, it's just this existence, that's all there is, so enjoy as much as you can, you know? Don't get too bent about anything, relax, it's gonna be over soon, in the meantime, have fun. That's, an ex that's the Epicurean philosophy. And then you have the Stoics, and they were actually followers of a man named Xenos, but the reason they got their name is from Stoas, which is the porches or the porticos in Athens where he taught. And so uh, it, it was these Stoics that would, um, uh, you know, you can almost imagine by the very name, they're very disciplined. Uh, they believe in a multiplicity of gods. They were pantheists, meaning God is in everything and everything is in God. And we have a lot of that on this island where people believe that. Uh, but they were people that, um, that really believed their motto was kind of life is hard and then you die. And, uh, and you can never appease the gods. You'll never get it completely right, but you just have to kind of grit it out, you know, and just do the best you can and be disciplined and play by the rules and you'll make it through and maybe, maybe, maybe something good will happen in the next life. And so you've got these two extremes, Epicureans. It's like, let's have a party. It's good, you know, there's nothing else, you know. And then you've got the, the, uh, the Stoics. It's like, you can't party. This is really serious. Life is important and oh, I'm not having much fun, but let's go. And these are the two people that come to Paul and right away they, they call him a babbler. And actually in the Greek, it means a seed picker. You know, you can guess, uh, you know, babbler, that's not a real compliment. And so they come to Paul and they say, what is this babbler trying to say? You know, hoity-toity guys, they know all of everything, they're educated. What can this guy possibly teach us? And so uh, the, the word seed picker actually means that a sparrow that goes around and just picks up a piece of bread there, a little grain of, of rice over here, something over there, something over here. And what they're doing is they're insulting Paul and saying, you've just picked up a little bit of this and a little bit of that from all these different religions and you've kind of slapped it together and made your own thing. We're not impressed. 
But some other people were uh, saying that he was advocating foreign gods, which you'd think it'd be a compliment. I mean, 30,000 idols, you know, you think, hey, he's got another one. But no, the word is daimonion in Greek, which means demons. So they are accusing him of preaching a demonic doctrine about some demonic God that Paul has uh, created in his mind. And so this is the atmosphere that Paul is in. This is pretty intimidating. But Paul, by the power of God and the spirit of God, keeps us cool and, uh, and is invited by these guys to the Areopagus to present this new teaching. And the text tells us that's all they did in this city. They just hung around. I don't know how they made a living, but uh, probably just from their disciples paying them and, you know, oh, I want to be your disciple. You know, we got people like this on the island. We got people here that, that, that uh, present themselves as gurus and they're teaching really nothing any different than, than what these philosophers were teaching. And they have people that will come and support them and pay their way and everything. And I'm assuming that's what was happening here. But the text says that they did nothing in the city except gather around these in the Areopagus and hear the newest and latest things that were going on in the world, particularly in the area of philosophy and religion. And so they were um, impressed enough with Paul that they invited him, though they disagreed with his teaching, they wanted to hear more. And so Paul, in verse 22, begins an incredibly diplomatic presentation of the gospel. And as I said uh, previously, this text, the Sermon on Mars Hill, which is where the Areopagus met, is a case study for evangelism and for uh, 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 preaching the gospel for church planting in, in every denomination, every Christian group in the world, they look at this text to study how to present Christ in a, in a hostile environment where people do not know his name and don't know any history about God at all. The first thing that Paul does in verse 22 is he acknowledges their religious hunger. And I love this about Paul. You know, he doesn't denigrate them. He doesn't refute them. He doesn't say, what are you thinking, you know? He doesn't start quoting Old, Old Testament passages about how dumb people are who serve wooden idols that can't see and can't hear and can't speak. They have no power, and the people that make them will become like them. He doesn't quote anything like that. He comes to him and he says, wow, I'm impressed. You guys are really serious about your religion here. I mean, 30,000 idols, that's incredible. And, and, you know, they, I can sense in the Areopagus, they're thinking, uh, is that a compliment or not? You know, they're not quite sure. It's like, where is this going? But they're, they're saying, yes, we are, we are rather religious. Yes, we are. And he, then he goes on and he says, you have so many gods. And the word that he uses in Greek is sabasma, which is uh, something adored. And I'm going to touch on that in just a minute. But something adored, it's, it, it was clearly understood by the Athenians to mean all these idols that they had. But something adored is actually what the, what the English translation means from the Greek. Something that's precious, that has great value, that, that incites the passion of a person above everything else in their life. And he also says that they're worshipers. So in, in this brief little sentence, he comes to them on their terms, on their turf, and he acknowledges some of the good that he sees in them. And there really is a spiritual hunger. And I would suggest to you that even now, I've, I've got uh, you know, friends and family and people on this island that I've met that, that Becky and I have for, for dinner and, and we have relationship with that do not believe 
in the Bible or believe in Jesus Christ. And, but there's always things that we can tie into. It's a connecting point. There needs to be some sort of a bridge that's built with someone. I can't you know, have a dinner and invite friends and family over and people in the community and have the objective of sharing the gospel with them and then finish the meal and then pull out uh, Bibles for everyone and say, okay, we'll turn to Acts 17. I wanna, I wanna share something really important and start, you know, I got my little pulpit and you guys all just sit there and, and preach the gospel. I can't, you know, that's not gonna fly. But what I can do is begin to build bridges. And that's what Paul does in this text. And there's a very important lesson for us because I know that as a congregation, you are people committed to the Great Commission. And you are sharing your faith with people and you are inviting people and, and expressing the work that God is doing in your life and you're inviting them into that relationship with Jesus. And one of the most effective things that we can do besides pray is we can build a bridge. And so we find ways to connect and to appreciate people for who they are, even though we may not believe the same things. So it's, sometimes it takes a little while. You know, sometimes it's a hobby or, or something that they're interested in, a, or, in or, or they love to talk about politics or they love to talk about uh, community events or, or like on this island, the sovereignty movement or the population or the traffic or something. Uh, usually anybody on this island can talk about traffic and it's a go, but, um, or the super ferry or something. But you find something that where, where you can build a bridge and begin to build a relationship. And as you move on in that conversation, eventually, because you've taken an interest in them, there is a mutual respect that grows and builds that opens up doors for opportunities to share in a very natural way about your walk with God. And so I so appreciate Paul's heart. Though he is on such a different page than the Athenians, he doesn't speak with them disrespectfully. He doesn't denigrate them. He doesn't rail at them but he comes and he finds things that he can connect with. And he says, you are a really a religious people. You know, I see the passion you have. He's recognizing the spiritual hunger and in a few minutes, he's gonna redirect that spiritual hunger to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wanna touch on this, um, this word sabasma for a moment, things adored. You know, in our culture, uh, there are still people that worship idols uh, and they still bow down to them. And in fact, as I was mentioning this family in India, uh, we went to their house and, and the first thing they want to show us, they're so proud of this, this, uh, uh, this worship altar that they've got in their kitchen and they've got little candles burning to it and everything. And I'm thinking, okay, they're Hindu and I don't know how much you know about Hinduism, but they have like over 300 million gods that, that they worship. And, and I see five or six in their little display there and my first question is, is wow, you guys are really religious, you know, you're really, you really take this seriously, don't you? And they say, yes, we do. And they're kind of, you can see them kind of, yes, we do. The father of the house is, yes, we take it very seriously. And I say, you know, how do you know which ones to choose to worship? Because I said, aren't there like 300 million gods? Yes, there are. And, and you know, we're talking about it and he's, tell me what this one is, you know, and what he does. And so they tell me that God and the next God and the next God and the next God, we get through them all. And I, and I basically say, how did you decide out of 300 million to choose these? And they said, well, these are the ones that we like. <laughs> I mean, that's a really good answer. And it was just like, that, 
<laughs> what can you say? That's a good, and you know what? And I got to share with them that I got to choose the God I like too. And it happened to be Jesus Christ. And uh, we got to share the gospel through that encounter. But by my simply appreciating their, their little idols over here and their worship center, rather than, you know, you know, oh, you know, get out of this place, cast the demons out of this house, you know, I simply just went over there and I, I made a connection with this family. And we're still friends and they correspond. And so it's just a neat thing how God, how God is able to open up doors like that uh, simply by um, uh, connecting with people and appreciating what they've done. But so these fa- this family was actually worshiping idols. And we don't really do a lot of that anymore. We certainly have people that worship Hawaiian gods. Uh, we certainly have people that worship uh, Hindu gods on this island. Uh, we have people that worship other things, but most people here, and I would suggest certainly most of us here don't worship and bow down uh, before gold and silver and uh, idols of any kind. However, when I come to a text like this, uh, I, I make it a practice to say, God, what can you teach me through this in my own walk with the Lord? Not, oh, gee, somebody else needs to hear this, and oh, I know three people that need to hear this message, but I'm thinking, God, are there any things in my life that are adored above you? Are, are there relationships that I hold at a premium above my relationship with you? Is, there, is, is money more important? Is status, is position, is influence, is uh, you know, some sort of a hobby? And, and the way that we know what we adore is basically what we spend most of our time on, most of our energy on, most of our money on, and most of our free time thinking about. So whatever it is that, uh, that kind of captures your mind is the thing that you adore. And I find myself, quite honestly, occasionally falling into adoring something other than God. And I wanna share a personal example. Uh, recently I was considering uh, uh, looking for a truck uh, for our family with a, with a bed because we have so, I'm always having to say, can you come up and pick something up at the church or take the trash or do something? And I'm thinking I, it would be great to be able to take the interns and haul stuff around. And I was able to borrow a truck from someone in the church th- this last month and it was really helpful. And so I'm thinking I wanna, I wanna buy a car and I wanna get a truck. And so I'm a, I'm a real shopper. I don't shop very much, but when I shop, I'm really, really deadly serious about shopping. And so, I mean, I'm on internet, I'm looking at uh, Kelly Blue Book, I'm looking at Edmunds, I'm going to all the websites to evaluate cars and trucks and the prices and all this stuff, because if I'm gonna buy it and put any money into it, and uh, I'm gonna get a used one, probably four or five years old, I don't buy new cars, and so I'm looking for something like that. And I, so I'm shopping, and, and you know what? I, it suddenly dawned on me, man, I, this, I'm spending way too much time on this. I mean, I'm on the internet, at, I'm, you know, I'm in bed with my laptop and Becky's asleep and I'm sitting there, you know, looking at reviews from, you know, five years ago on this truck and that truck and, and suddenly it dawned on me, man, there's something more adored in my life right now than Jesus Christ because I'm not, I'm not spending that kind of time in the word or in prayer. So I'm just sharing my personal example with you. It doesn't mean that you're, you're, you're uh, you know, bowing down and worshiping. It just means that it suddenly captures your heart in such a way that it, it's, you're just almost uh, uh, obsessed with whatever it is. And I find for myself that can happen to me occasionally. And it's a good thing I'm not really a shopper shopper. I'm just a shopper. So when I shop, I shop, but I'm not really a shopper shopper because I don't like to shop a lot. But when I shop, I shop, okay? So that's the problem I've got. But I wanna share with you that this is a little bit of an encouragement and a warning for us because we all have things like that in our life that we suddenly become obsessed with that, that takes our heart away from our passion for Christ. 
And that's what was happening in this area of Athens. And so Paul begins to describe to them his observations in Athens. And he says, I saw all these adored things, all these idols in, in, uh, in Athens. And he says, interesting, I came upon this idol to an unknown God. And this unknown God, I wanna proclaim to you. Now I'm thinking, what, what person in their right mind would go to the trouble of erecting an altar for an unknown God? I mean, that's like really trying to cover all your bases. And I know people like that. Have you ever known anybody a little bit of Hindu, a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Judaism, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, just covering my bases? Everybody's going there, I hope, you know, but I want to just cover everything and everything's good, you know? Kind of the Epicurean lifestyle. Just want to be happy, want to get along. So Paul goes to, to teach about the unknown God. My question is, and maybe yours too, is why would they even go that far to have an unknown God? Well, interestingly, about 600 years previous to this occasion that Paul is teaching in, and this event, these events are taking place, there was a terrible plague in Athens. And it was just as it was rising to its zenith, and there was this terrible plague that hit the city, and it was just wiping out uh, thousands of people, and that's a large part of the population. And they sacrificed to all their gods and they couldn't figure out it wasn't stopping and none of their gods were, were rescuing them. And so a man named Epimenides decided that uh, as one of the philosophers and religious leaders, he had a kind of an epiphany and an idea on how he could maybe stem this plague. And so what he said is he said, let's gather a whole bunch of sheep together, maybe a thousand sheep, and we're gonna send them out from the, from the very center, city center of Athens, and wherever they lie down and rest, we will sacrifice to the nearest idol in the name of that God. And so they began to do that. However, some of the sheep wandered off to places and lay down where there wasn't a temple or an idol. And so they erected an altar to the unknown God that they couldn't name, that they didn't know, in order to sacrifice. And interestingly, and this is just amazing to me how God weaves history together, but what's interesting is that they attributed the salvation of that city not to their other gods, but to the unknown God. And so they had all of these unknown God altars scattered throughout the 30,000 idols. Among them, scattered around, were, were the altars to the unknown God. And Paul says, this unknown God whom you worship, and Paul knew the history, is the God I wanna proclaim. And you can bet that they perked up when they heard a proclamation about the unknown God. Do you see how God was weaving history together to prepare the hearts of the Athenians 600 years in advance to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ before Christ was born, before he died on the cross and before he raised from the dead? It's amazing how God is working together his eternal purposes for his glory. And so he begins to proclaim to them the unknown God. And I'm gonna go through this part of the text fairly quickly. What I do wanna say is that because the people in Athens had almost no knowledge of, of, uh, of Christianity and of the history of Judaism because they rejected it, Paul had to begin at the beginning. And if you are teaching or sharing with people that have some sort of a Christian heritage, and many people do in the United States, you can begin talking about Jesus Christ, and they're okay with that because they know who he is and what he did and why he did it. But if you are teaching and presenting the gospel to people who don't have any background about Judaism at all or the Old Testament, you have to start at the beginning. Because if you start talking about you know, uh, uh, the Son of God, sent on a cross, crucified, and his blood somehow saved you, that is just a bizarre story if you're starting from scratch. You have to go back to the beginning 
and you have to explain creation, and you have to explain the fall of man, and you have to explain the covering uh, that God gave them through the death of animals, and you have to explain the Old Testament uh, temple worship and God's desire to dwell among men and, and the, the holiness of God and how God provided prophets and a, and a nation in which his name would be declared, and then finally that he would present his son as the final atonement, acting as a high priest for the nations of this world that men and women might have their sins forgiven. And so Paul begins his message in verse 24 by saying that God made the world and everything in it. And he begins to, to state his case for creation and for the authority of God Almighty to have reign and rule over the world. And he says in the second part of verse 24 that God doesn't live in temples built by human hands. Ouch. Okay, you got 30,000 temples and now all of a sudden the guys realize that, that Paul has been very gracious and he's built a bridge, but now he's saying some very pointed and direct things. God does not dwell in temples built by human hands. And now they're starting to hear the message. And he goes on to say that God is not dependent on human service. He gives men life and breath and everything that we have. Now, if you know anything about pantheism and idol worship, you know that you have to bring sacrifices to feed these gods. They need food offerings. They need money offerings. They need all kinds of materials and goods to be able to continue on. I don't know, <laughs> you know, that's just the way they are. They're dependent on the offerings of man. But Paul says pointedly, not with the one true God, not with the unknown God who rescued you 600 years ago. And he made every nation of men from one man to inhabit the whole earth. And in verse 26 and 27, I want to touch on this briefly, but I actually taught on this verse um, about two months ago, these two verses, and so I'm going to condense that teaching. Um, uh, if you want to get the, the CD on it, it's probably one of the most transformational truths for me about divine appointments and about seeing God working in and through my life and in the world that, that I know of. These two verses are very powerful, but let me share them with you briefly. It says that God determined beforehand, it's horizo, it's a horizon. He marked out beforehand forever the times set for man and the places where they should live, the exact places where they should live. And he's, he tells us uh, in a minute why he did this, but he has actually appointed the exact time and the exact place where nations and individuals should live. Now, when I began to really meditate on this many years ago and began to understand the importance of this, these two verses, it completely blew me away. Because as a new Christian, I wasn't quite sure, to be honest with you, whether there was a real guidance in life from God or simply that God said, hey, you know, uh, I just want relationship with you. Just go out and be a good guy and do good things. And whatever you decide to do is fine with me because you're going to be blessing me and honoring me simply by just doing what you want. And then the other side where people said, man, you, you got to, God, you know, you need to pray about whether to put the left shoe on or the right shoe on first and which pants to wear and all that kind of thing. And so I, I'd heard two extremes and I didn't really know where the balance was until I came to this text. But I began to realize, wait a second, if God has appointed the exact time in human history and the exact place where we should live in human history, then he cares very much about things like who I marry. He cares very much about where I work. He cares very much about where I live and the people I influence and where I go and my phone calls and my encounters at Walmart or Kmart or on the road or in, at the beach. Suddenly my whole 
Christian world just like, it was like, you know, it was like a nuclear explosion for me in understanding that my life was far more important to God than I thought. Not because of anything in me, but because he counted it important. And that he actually had a plan for my life. And that he, he, he designed me to be a part of his great work in some way, some, some way that I really didn't know. And I, before that, I kind of thought I was just kind of like a BB in a boxcar. I thought, you know, I'm just a little nothing. And, uh, you know, I, I'm just, I'll serve the Lord, but I have no idea how I fit in. And I'm just going to do the best I can. And suddenly, through this text of, of Acts 17, 26, and 27, my mind and my heart and my eyes were open to realize that I had a destiny. I have a purpose that God has for me that had been planned even before creation began. And he knew what it would be. And so now when I have a phone call or an encounter or where I live, I know that God has placed me there. And somebody asked me last night, well, how do you know where to be? You know, well, obviously we, we can't change the time we were born, but how do we know we're supposed to be on Kauai right now? We're all here, right? Is everybody on Kauai right now? Okay, we're all here. How do you know that you're actually supposed to be here right now or anywhere else for that matter in, in the afternoon? Well, here's the thing is that if you are walking with God and filled with his spirit and led by his spirit and keeping in step with his spirit, you are going to be in the right place. Some, I, you know, they were asking me how to do that and I was like, the one thing that you don't have to do is be at all worried that you're in the wrong place because if you're walking with God and loving him and simply being responsive to what he's doing in your life, you're already in the right place because God is more determined to get you in the right time, in the right place, under the right circumstances than you care to be. He is more determined than you are and God will get you there. And so the only thing we need to do is not walk in disobedience. And so suddenly your life becomes meaningful and a phone call that you get from a friend is not like, oh man, you know, I got stuff to do. It's like, wait, this is a divine appointment. God has ordained this. And you become more attentive and more open and more responsive and more receptive to God using you in that lifestyle. And so I wanna really encourage you. I, I know there are probably some of you here today that are struggling in your marriage and you're thinking, I made a terrible mistake. Well, you might think that, but what I wanna tell you is that God has ordained it. If you're married, it's done and God's in it, and he's calling you to live a life pleasing to him. How about your job? You hate your job? Are you still in your job? Well, then God has you there, and be the best employee or the best boss or whatever you can be for his glory. And when you're in your neighborhood, you might not like the people next door or three doors down, and you might have a little feud going, but my suggestion is that God has placed you there sovereignly and divinely to carry out his eternal purposes. I, I'm gonna, I, I need to stop, but I just get excited about all that because God has a plan. And, and then the next question becomes, okay, if God's got a plan, what is it and how do I find out about it and why does he have this plan for me? Well, and then God tells us why in this next verse. Why does God give us the exact time and the exact place that we're supposed to live? Why are you there? Why are you here? Why are you in your neighborhood? And that question leads to the answer so that men might seek him, so that men might seek him, that men might reach out to him. And it actually means to grope in the Greek. It means, you know, sometimes I don't even know what to do next, you know? I have decisions I have to make right now as a pastor for all kinds of things, and there's some of them I'm lost on. I just don't have enough information. And God hasn't revealed it to me, and I just, I feel like I'm a blind man groping, but I'm groping for God. I'm not just groping, I'm groping for God. That's the key thing. And so God says he's done this. He's placed us 
in this generation, in this season, on this island, in our circumstances, so that you might seek him. Why? So that you can find out why. What your purpose is. And he says that you might seek after him and that you might find him. And I want to suggest to you that so much of life, in fact, many of the confusing things about life uh, are grounded in this very simple principle, is that God is trying to get our attention. I'm not saying that God does, is responsible for evil. He's not. I could go through and talk about, you know, Satan and his role, and I could talk about the world and the fallenness of it and sin and its impact, but I do want to say this. In addition to all those things, that God has allowed the circumstances in your life to occur that you might seek him and that you might grope for him. You know, the honest truth is, is that I never seek God or grope as diligently for God as when I'm in trouble and when I don't know what to do. Aren't you the same way? When you know what to do and you got the whole thing figured out and everything's Epicurean, you know, it's just like, eat, drink, and be merry, this is wonderful. Don't you find that the passion for crying out to God subsides? And it's only when, you, when the pressure gets ratcheted up. These things are really a gift to us and, and we need to consider them a gift to bring us to a place of the altar of worship and crying out to God that we might seek him. But God has placed you specifically here in this time in human history and in this place and in your neighborhoods and in your workplace with your children, with your spouse, with your family, strategically. You have a, a, a personality and cultural and social influence that's like a human fingerprint. There is no one else that touches the same influential bonds of relationship and connections that you do. There is no one else. And God has called you. I'm just blown away by that. The honor, the privilege that God has given you to represent him in the days in which we live. Paul goes on in verse 28 and says, you know, you may be groping for him, but he's not far from any of us. In him we live and move and have our being and we are his offspring. And he goes on to say that God should not be thought of being made of gold or silver or stone or an image made by man's design or skill. Really, denigrating to God, absurd and insulting to God to think of him as something less than we are. If we're his creation, why would we create a God that's less than we are when we're created by God? And so Paul is making that point. In the past, Paul says, God overlooked this kind of ignorance, but now he commands people everywhere to repent. And it means to have a change of mind. He was calling the Epicureans to, to have a change of mind. He was calling the Stoics to have a change of mind. He was calling the idolaters of Athens to have a change of mind and to come to Christ. He finishes his, his uh, brief sermon in verse 31 by saying that God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed and that man is Jesus Christ. And he's given proof of all this to all men by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. In essence, what Paul is saying is that if Christ is not your deliverer, then he will be your judge. That's the choice. Every man, every woman, everyone even listening here, he will either be your judge on that day or he will be your deliverer on that day. And the choice has to do with what you do and what I do with the gift of Jesus Christ. Well, the, uh, the Epicureans and, and Stoics, they got pretty upset at this point and they began to sneer at him. Uh, they began to mock him. And uh, by the way, mocking is always the last line of defense when a logical defense is absent. And it's an admission of intellectual and moral and ethical defeat. 
So whenever you see someone in an argument and it turns into name calling and mocking, you realize they've been defeated intellectually. They've lost the intellectual battle and they have nothing else to say except now to bring denigrating comments against the other person. By the way, this is a really great way to judge politicians uh, when you hear them debate. Because as soon as you know that somebody starts insulting somebody, uh, that they've already, they're, they're flying the flag and say, you're right, I'm wrong, I have nothing else to say and to stand on, I cannot defend my position, you're a jerk. Okay, so that, that's, a, that's a good way to know who really doesn't have an argument anymore um, uh, in a debate. But that's what it came to with the Epicureans and Stoics. Here are these highly intelligent men, and yet they cannot answer these uh, issues that Paul brings up, and so they begin to mock him. But the Bible tells that some of them wanted to hear more. It may have been a delay tactic. It may have been an expression of genuine interest. But here's what the Bible says. If the Holy Spirit is speaking you to t today, if he's speaking to you today, don't harden your hearts because you never know if you're gonna have another chance. You just don't know the condition of your heart. And so even today, I wanna share with you that though we're talking about you know, idolaters and we're talking about uh, you know, philosophers and people that reject Christ, there's an application to me is that what is God really speaking to my heart? What is he really calling me to do? What is he saying by his spirit about my life and about the kind of, the kind of person he wants to, to create me to be and the kind of influence he wants me to have and the kind of life he wants me to live? And, and God is saying, if you hear his voice today, and, and the crazy thing is I often have people come up to me afterwards and they'll say, you know, I love this part of your sermon and I'm thinking, I didn't even say that, you know? And that, that's when you know the Holy Spirit's working because they'll say, you know, that part that you said about this, and I'm just like, I'm so glad that happened, but that wasn't me. That was the Holy Spirit, because that's not even in my notes, you know? And um, so there may be things that God is speaking to you this morning, or even before you came, and I want to encourage you. Today is the day. Why not now? Why not step up? Why not yield? Why not surrender? Are you tired yet? Are you exhausted in your effort to work the angles and, and pound through the issues you're facing? Are you willing to give God the supreme authority to bring your life into conformity with his will? He's got a purpose for you. He's got a plan. I've, uh, I often think of God in my life in the past and sometimes even now when I'm kind of, I'm trying to make something happen that, that he's not necessarily behind. And I almost envision in my mind, not, a, not a, uh, an anger from God by any means, and not, certainly not a lack of interest, but I almost see God kind of, kind of folding his arms and just stepping back, and if I had a stool, I'd sit on it and just kind of put his foot up and say, well, if this is what you want, have at it. And he, and, but he doesn't leave me. He's still there. He's still operating in my life, but I'm exhausting myself, wearing myself out, trying to make it happen. And finally, I get to the end of myself and I say, I can't do it. And he says, I know. And he steps up and he says, would you like a hand with that? And I said, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, I'd like you to be the Lord of my life again. Okay, good, because that's my role. Now, let's get started. And I want to suggest to you that it may be that some of you today have been taking the role that belongs to God in some arena of your life and you become tired and weary and discouraged and worn out and God is, is sitting back because he honors your free will to step in and he's saying, when you're tired enough and when you want me, I'm here and I will step up and I will deliver and I will save and I will restore and I will correct and I will get you back on the path that I've designed you to fulfill.
I'm looking at you guys and I, I just have such a love for you because of Christ and because I know you and you're in the image of God. And I'm seeing, and I, there, there's so many of us here and I'm seeing each one of you and I think to myself, my goodness, each one of you have a sovereign destiny that God wants to fulfill in your life. But if we're living like Epicureans, you know, just, you know, just do enough to get along to be happy, or if we're living like Stoics, just you know, grinding it out and gritting it out and stop being happy, I'm not happy, you know? If we're, if we're living between those two worlds, God is calling us to the center of his will and he's saying, I want you to know me and I want you to experience the abundant life and I want you to have joy. That's God's plan. But he has a plan for you to fulfill his divine and eternal purposes. Well, we find in the end that some did believe, a man named Dionysius, uh, a member of the Areopagus and possibly many scholars believe that he became the, uh, the bishop of Athens as uh, Christianity grew there. A woman named Damaris and a number of others, not a great number of people, but it was the beginning of a great work there. And so we come to the end of this text this morning and I guess the thing I just want to kind of summarize briefly is that, is that we really do have these two worlds, the Epicureans in the world, eat, drink, and be happy, and then you've got the people that are really trying diligently but are just grinding through life and neither of those are God's will. He's calling us to something better. And if you've never received Christ this morning, I wanna encourage you to do so. And for those of us that are believers and we've already surrendered our life to Christ, I wanna challenge you to consider whether there's something adored in your life that supersedes your love for Christ. And if there is, confess it, repent, and begin to live for the one true God who has a divine and eternal purpose the exact place, the exact time, the exact circumstances that you might fulfill his divine calling in these days in which we live. Father, we thank you for this time this morning and for your word. Such a privilege to study it. Such a privilege to be together. And Father, I thank you for the men and women and young people that are here this morning. And along with them, God, we cry out, I cry out, God, please reveal more of yourself. Father, I think about how many Believers know you, but your true character, your principles, the way that you operate, we're ignorant of you because we don't read the word or we don't pray and we don't really seek you. We're not passionate for you. We're not willing to grope along to, until we find you. And so God, I pray that you'd stir up in us a hunger for truth, a hunger for life, a hunger for relationship with you and that we would put aside lesser things and that we would pursue you. And Father, I wanna to pray too for anyone that may be here this morning that doesn't know you, that they've never accepted Christ as their savior, that today might be the day. So Lord, we give ourselves to you and we ask that your will would be done and that you might send us out in this very strategic time in which we live, where you've planted us and placed us in this millennia, in this decade, in this year on Kauai, in the exact places where you want us, to carry out a very specific work, which Ephesians 2.10 says, these good works which you've created beforehand, that we should walk in them. And Lord, may you find us walking in your work, doing your will, bringing you praise, bringing you fruit. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.